Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of uh, Treknababble. Uh, this is Kevin. And this is Matthew. And uh, we're going to be reviewing uh, Deep Space Nine Season 6, One Little Ship, today. Um, this is a... It's a silly setup, but I, I enjoy—I always enjoy watching this episode. I always rewatch it when I when I watch through season six. So uh, we'll see how it stands up to to scrutiny. But uh, I always think of uh, Rascals when I think of this episode. That kind of like it's fun and it's well executed fun, so I can enjoy it on that level. But uh, I'm curious how well uh, deep analysis uh, bears out. Well, I think in some ways. Um... This is more serious than Rascals. Uh, the setup, we'll get into that. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, there's a whole Gem Hadar story, which is more consequential, maybe. Yeah, this kidnapping, than... this uh, uh, ship capturing plot feels much more uh, <laughs> hefty than the uh, stupid Ferengi one. capturing the Enterprise. And, you know, it, just in terms of the series, uh, this is happening in the midst or on the heels perhaps of a larger multi-part story whereas in tng by its nature uh, that was really never the case you know so it's um hmm. yeah I, I guess the episode this actually reminds me of is a animated series episode uh you know <laughs> haven't memorized all of their names but um the one in which you know they're shrunk <laughs> essentially and that's not important as far as story goes uh what's important to my mind is that this is an episode that pretty much could not have been done uh prior to a certain year in the star trek franchise so it's like in the way that the animated series allowed them to do sort of wacky stuff that they could never do in TOS, uh, it seems like this is, you know, their first stab at something out there, you know, something very different. So I appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, I agree with that. This this is something that they could not have successfully done on on next gen. Yeah. Well, at least not early next gen, and probably not even most of later next gen. Um, it would have been different anyway. Uh, okay, well, let's get started. All right. Uh, I am queued up and ready to go. Uh, all right, me too. So let's all start our various media. In three, two, one, press play. Now, I will say... Whenever there's a Defiant-centered episode, I'm always just kind of wondering why <laughs> they made Deep Space Nine Deep Space Nine and not just another Star Trek show with a ship. Um, I, I mean, I get it. It's part of the retooling of the show. It's part of the, the change, uh, which was intended to make it more marketable, more appealing to wider audiences it just it sticks out to me uh the only uh, it uh, i don't mind it the only thing that ever really nagged me about 
uh, the the defiant episodes is it is literally the entire senior staff off the station. I mean, literally. Well, yeah, and it seems like that happens every time. You know, uh, they don't really get much into shifts and watches and. There are other Starfleet personnel, you know. Doesn't Bajor... I mean, have we seen Bajor in the past yeah. 12 episodes? Uh, but doesn't Bajor get, like, mildly annoyed that the emissary is leaving? I don't know. Anyhow, our setup here is that there is a subspace compression phenomenon. And it has an accretion disk, so it's maybe something like a black hole. Uh, and they're going to look into it to see if it can teach them about uh, this or that thing, which might be tactically advantageous. Um, okay, fine. I'm okay with this part so far. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a MacGuffin, but it's not, it's not the worst one. Well, look, I mean, if you're going to do a show where something crazy happens, you need some sort of you know, means by which that crazy thing happens. So, okay, fine. And Star Trek has, of course, had many a an invented phenomenon, which has strange effects. I mean, all subspace phenomena are yeah. invented. I, I did enjoy the little um, joke there, but setting up Worf's epic poem and Nog uh, jumping in. I, the, the scene worked well. So now we're on the runabout... And they make a bunch of references to the shutters opening and closing, but that window behind Dr. Bashir is already closed, and so is that one. So I guess they're only talking about the front yeah. windows. Yeah. Um, I just wonder if that was an oversight by the production crew. You know, and there's some humor here about uh, shrinking... Um, This is not a new idea in science fiction. You know, disappearing and or shrinking has been a recurring motif uh, for a long time, at least since the 1950s in cinema, but uh, I'm pretty sure yeah. uh, The Invisible Man, you know, well, before that, that was H.G. Wells, right? Yeah, for, for some reason, I, I enjoyed, like, the buzzwords like accretion disk and discussing that because Bashir is slightly farther from the phenomenon, he's slightly less shrunk. I don't know, little touches like that helped sell it for me. Yeah, yeah, I think those are those are nice details. Yeah, it, it helps diffuse the sense that it is literally just magic. You know, the, um, the Defiant is tethering itself via tractor beam to the runabout in order to prevent it from getting too shrunk, I guess. Uh, and here we see this tether. I have to say, their, uh, their background effects have gotten pretty good. That's a pretty solid nebula. Yeah, yeah. You know, I wonder, though, if there are different crews working on Voyager versus DS9, because typically, at least to my mind, the Voyager backdrops tend to look better. Um Maybe it's just the ship design. Uh, this is one of those things where it's like, how many consoles explode in just such a way that the person is rendered instantly unconscious but not dead? Well, it depends on what on how good their contract is. Cause I bet that other guy's dead. Well, I don't think they mention any casualties, uh, fatalities rather. Yeah. 
Um, okay, so the Jem'Hadar have come on the ship, and, you know, we say to ourselves, oh, well, wow, maybe something important is happening here. I, I was just making a note of the tethering effect because, you know, I get the impression that they're careening uncontrollably toward whatever this phenomenon is, and they're becoming smaller than they expected to become. Um, you know, I guess we'll see when the show starts up again <coughs> after the credits. I, I'm going to renew my objection to the thrumming bass beat that they've added to what used to be sort of a stately uh, theme. There was an interesting article, I think it was on io9, about which Trek series have the best themes. Yeah, I think I, I saw that one. I mean, uh, the, the Internet's hatred of Faith of the Heart remains pretty universal. I'm not <laughs> bothered by uh, the the season one through three or four through seven Deep Space Nine themes. I, I Maybe I just, maybe there's some like weird genetic difference that just makes me less responsive to this baseline. But I, I tend to, I, I've seen that in a lot of, even Deep Space Nine fans, where it's like, oh, I hate that baseline. And I'm just like, am I missing something? Is the, Does it have religious significance? It just, I, I'm not... I noticed it, but beyond noticing it, I kind of didn't think about it again. Well, it's just tacky. I mean, it's not that noticeable, and because DS9's theme is kind of boring, I just sort of tune it out, you know. Um, the article that uh, got it pretty much right, you know, Voyager and TNG you know, are probably the, the peak. Um, TOS has its charm. You know, I think DS9 is pretty forgettable. All right, so the runabout has been damaged, kind of. Uh, we must have escaped the anomaly. I mean, you're right. This is this is the entire senior staff, <laughs> and in the in the very next episode. They're going to make a reference to O'Brien being off the ship yet again and how the station falls apart when he's gone. You know, it, I don't know. Are, are they ever there at this point? It seemed like they were. I don't know. It, they made such a big deal about retaking the station and now they're never there. It just seems like. So anyhow, we are setting up this conflict between the alphas and the betas not betas the gammas, gammas yeah <laughs> i'd hope the writers would not be that literal <laughs> <laughs> well i really like this thing oh no yeah it's it i think it's a lot on the strength of the actors uh, somewhat surprisingly to me one of the things i've really found re-watching d space nine is an appreciation for the depth of quality in writing and particularly acting of the Jem Hadar. Like for a race that's supposed to be mindless automatons, they do a pretty decent job of giving them some, some texture. Well, it seems like they pretty quickly realized that mindless automata would be uh, boring or maybe paint them into storytelling corners in the way that maybe the board did. Um, here we have the Vorta and this Vorta is going to appear again. Uh, in various episodes, he seems pretty okay. Yeah, maybe I, not maybe not as unctuous as some of the other Vorta. 
I always enjoy that um, somehow the view screen can still make a full like view screen thing, even though it's not a full view screen. I'm like, it's fine. I don't want to stare at this dude's eyeball or anything, but it, it just something I note. Yeah, I mean that's on his shit, so who knows? <laughs> well, and it's like they try to point out that it's different by him not looking directly at them, but I, I, yeah, I don't get it. They've colored the Vorta subtly differently. Um, our Gamma Vorta is slightly bluer, I guess. You mean the, the, the other Gemadar. ones are slightly pinker. Or, yeah, Gemadar. Yeah, I, I don't know if that... I'm trying to think. There's been some subtle skin tone variations from, like, you know, lighter to darker grays over the Gemadar, but I do... I think it's consistent here. Um, now, I just want to point out that, you know, our... Gamma second here has just said that we should keep Cisco and the crew around in order to effect repairs, but that's going to quickly uh, be contradicted very soon. So, well, I no, think... I think he said just Cisco and his. Uh... Yeah. I just kind of wondered what all that those doodads on their costumes do. <laughs> You know, why would you put the senior staff in one room together without anybody watching them? I just don't get that. I thought these guys were supposed to be like badass super warriors who, you know, covered all the angles, you know, and that's why they were so good and, and threatening. And this is just stupid, you know? Letting the key crew members conspire with each other. Well, I guess everyone's star everyone's security is as bad as Starfleet's. I guess. I just feel like it. Maybe it's a teensy bit lazy. Um, there is an Enterprise episode in which the crew is uh, interned by the Sulaban, I believe. Uh, each in their own individual quarters, and they have to improvise a way to communicate between the quarters. And it took some time to set up, but I appreciated the, you know, the effort that they went to. Yeah. Yeah, he's definitely bluer, and the other ones are pinker. So the science fiction <coughs> is nice, you know, that, and there's a lot of nice details that lend it as much verisimilitude as I suppose it can have. Um, okay, we've gone to like one of the first effect shots um, set up by the setup of the episode, and I have to say it's really good. Like part of, I mean, this episode by in the end will largely work for me because the special effects work was really solid. Like, it was really convincing. Like, the shutter opening on the wall, the pan out from the tiny runabout to the expanse of the Defiance uh, hall, like that, it just looks cool. Well, and there's a lot of model shots, you know? Yeah. There's a lot of very close-up shots. Yeah, it's clear they're working off the model. That's not CGI. I doubt CGI today could produce texture that uh, realistic. Well, it, it's interesting, though, because 
you know, the texture is, I mean, even in standard definition, you know, so well realized that you can, like when you look at some, like those little vent looking yeah. things, there, and it, you can kind of tell it's painted yeah. because it's so close to it. But I don't, I don't hate that because I want to see the model up close, you know. Okay, so here, here's the ridiculous part of the setup. I guess yeah, now we're here. <laughs> I guess the reason that we've stayed stayed tiny is that we did not leave the anomaly by the same path through which we entered it. That's just ridiculous. <laughs> that okay, this is I I'm willing to believe there's some region of space in which the fundamental universal content uh of uh, constants are altered you know the strong nuclear force the weak nuclear force you know, whatever forces govern the distance between protons and electrons right i'm totally willing to believe that and i'm especially willing to believe that the closer they get to this region the, the more squished they get and the further out they get the less squished they are but if they if they're away from that region of space they should now be functioning in accordance with the universal con constants. I don't know why I keep tripping on that word. Constants that govern that region of space. There's just there's no way I can believe that they stay compressed. You know. Yeah. Yeah. And you know the what fact else? That it has to do with like the course by which they flew in and they flew out. That's just stupid. Yeah, I but mean, is there any explanation that isn't stupid? <laughs> I, I would prefer some kind of made-up explanation. Like, the energy was so powerful, it's, we're going to stay this size for X amount of time, which could put a dramatic, you know, time clock on yeah. the events of the episode. It's like, you know, we're inside this circuit board, but we've only got 20 minutes before we, you know, blow up and kill ourselves, you know, because, you know, we'll, we'll have gotten bigger inside or you know they could have gradually gotten bigger right that could have been an interesting effect too just i don't know it it really annoyed me <coughs> the gemidar also seemed to like wasn't it the case in previous gemidar episodes that they would like kill each other immediately for disobedience and stuff you know, are the alphas, like, nicer or something? Well, they're certainly cockier, which is well, saying yeah, something. he's cocky and all, but he's taking this insubordination with relative uh, amiability compared to what, at least my impression of previous Jemadar. Like, he should just shoot his ass right now. The one thing that always bothered me about the Jem'Hadar is they never explain why the white didn't run out, because the whole point of blowing up the depot was to destroy their supply of white, and then they did it. Um, I just would have liked, I would have liked some line that it had, like, here's a fun explanation. The Alpha Jem'Hadar were created to be less dependent on the white, with the yeah. hopes of stretching the supply, and the result is a less, um, you know, automaton soldier. Like, the more complicated personality or you know more independent thought 
is a artifact of their decreased dependence on the drug, that would be a clean explanation that would solve a bunch of problems for me. So here's a cool effect. That, oh, ju- just awesome. Like, I imagine this is this is all CGI. I mean, or at least some, at least a lot of it. I mean, but it just looks I, really cool. I, I wonder if the runabout is a model and the backdrop is CGI. Yeah, maybe. Either way, they did a really nice job with shadowing. Yeah. And, uh, just the sense of scale. It's really excellent. Um, and, you know, this is classic shrinking sci-fi you know yeah we're gonna go inside some machine and we don't know for sure because it's very difficult to keep our bearings you know okay that was one of those one of the the small jokes that really got me though it's not beat up on the chief that was very small of me i don't know why that one always makes me laugh no i like that so here our second is now saying if i were in charge basically you'd be dead already but that's not what he said to the first. And, you know, I like this scene. I think Avery Brooks is doing a fine job. I think the guest actor is doing a fine job. But right now, suddenly he just starts, like, discussing his feelings or something. <laughs> you know, it's like, seriously, dude? You're supposed to be the hard-ass. And, like, Cisco didn't even didn't even really put a whammy on you as far as you know, psychological tricks. I don't know. This this feels of a piece with like the similar conversations they had in, uh, what is it, To the Death, um, when they go take out the renegade Jem'Hadar. This, yeah. this, this feels of a piece with his conversations. Like, I know that you're hiding this from us, but it doesn't matter because blah, blah, blah. Like that, that kind of taciturn, gruff stuff seems to... One thing about the white that, I don't know, it it doesn't bother me per se, but the the little tube that goes in, uh, it just seems like it's really pumping a lot at any given time. And then you see these little vials of white, and, you know, it's the size of a test tube. It seems like it should be gone in, like, three minutes. It's also really be a patch or something. That tube just seems, like, really dangerous. Like, I could just rip that out or something. Yeah. Maybe, I don't know. It was the nicotrol patch, something that had been invented. At this I, I point? think so. That that that's about yeah. The nicotine patches, yeah. So maybe they were worried about <laughs> doing that. Okay, and and so this is just fun stuff. It's like you know this machine that we take for granted generally is uh, you know doing its normal thing, but we could die because we're small. I like that. Well, and I like the three they picked for this because. Obviously, O'Brien and Bashir have a certain have friendly banter, but I always thought um, O'Brien and Dax had a good professional banter. Like, a, they they seem to complement each other well, and like the the three of them are entertaining to watch in this setup. Yeah, no, I agree. I think they all do a good job, and they each have sort of a different uh, take on it. You know, O'Brien's uneasy. Dax is a scientist. Bashir is sort of wisecracking, I guess. Well, there's something, and there's something I really like about Terry Farrell's performance in this. Like, she has a kind of confident, almost gleeful, whiz bang attitude about the whole, like a, a an almost sanguine, like which fits both the actress's strengths and the character. Because the character would just see this as, well, this will be something fun for the symbiont to remember, um, and it, it 
it, it was fun to watch her do this. Like when she's, you know, doing all the daring do and flying, flipping in and out of doors and dodging stuff that she just really played it very well. Yeah, I agree with that. And again, the shadow work is really good. There's no mat lines. There's no, yeah, just look. And the, you know what I like? The camera is moving while the ship is moving and not in the exact same pattern. So it wasn't like they just held a static room. Yeah, it throw- makes a sense of depth. Yeah, it just looked really cool. Like when the camera moves over the ship and up the warp core, it just looks really good. Yeah, and I'm kind of annoyed by a lot of these repair scenes. It's just, you know, okay, we've put the group of people who have obviously been conspiring uh, into the one place where they could do the most damage. And I, I just can't believe any of them could get away with anything. You know? I thought it was a little strange that they went through this port. And, uh, yeah, this is really nice. Yeah. Like, combination of the reflections. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's probably CGI. Yeah, that I mean, that's gotta be. But it's very good CGI. Well, I mean, it could be some sort of composite... But and I gotta say, who's who's ever in charge of flying the ship around in the shot did a really good job. It it still feels like it's moving about in. It looks better here moving about in space than it does when it's in deep space on the show. You know what I mean? Like it looks like this agile three dimensional craft. Yeah, I do have questions about how it flies in normal gravity versus yeah. zero gravity. And that, that's actually one of my, it's not a concern as much as a question. You know, they're in this impulse tube, uh, and it's heating up, and it's going to kill them. But don't they have shields? Also, they're flying around this ship. And even though they're the size of, you know, like a deck of cards or whatever, um, they still have a, a reactor on board that's more powerful than anything humanity's produced, you know, to date. Shouldn't this show up on sensors somewhere? Well, I don't think yeah. the sensors are working. Uh, okay. It's interesting how, number one, they can get camera angles on all this stuff. Yeah. But also, uh, no, I, I like sort of O'Brien's read on things. And I do like that they're saying magnification, 739. No, I, I, I was going to say, I, I like that they suss out the plan from from a distance i'm like that 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 make it makes everyone credible but if they can suss out the plan from a distance why can't the gentleman i know i know but yeah i mean as a plot it works well yeah you know? it, like it doesn't this. bear it doesn't bear the most scrutiny in the world but Like, how come they're not... A, is there artificial gravity on the runabout yeah. that's counteracting the artificial gravity? I, I, I would say that would be part of, like, the inertial dampeners and all that. Hmm. So there's just a lot of neat doodads on set, like that thing pulled out of the wall. Like, that was just a really well-achieved sh- sh- shot of the, of the feet and the ship and the moving camera. I'm really impressed by that. In the episode, they're making it sound like there's this definite hum from the engine. Does nobody notice this? 
yeah, those are really nice focus effects that make the runabout seem the same size as the tools. Well, I like that they at least played up this way. Like, he's clearly, like, the second does know what's going on, but he acknowledges he's powerless to stop it because of the extant power structure. So he's actively trying to interfere with what they're doing to the best of his ability without reaching some other code. So it's not like the Jemadar being willful, like, only the first is being willfully stupid. But they paint that as a character flaw, an explicit one. So I'm not, maybe I'm not as bothered. Like they're calling. He's like, you're playing right into his hand, which of course we know he is, but that's this character's trait. No, and generally, you know, there's still menace and, you know, he's still threatening to kill people, and I like that. <coughs> and so the basic nuts and bolts of the plot that there's one group of crew members who can be seen and one group who can't be. Um, that little shimmy to avoid the hand also just really well done I, I'm yeah. seriously impressed well in that shot they had multiple shadows yeah. from light sources yeah really nice CG definitely when the, the ship sort of tilts on an axis like that it's clearly CG because yeah. they can do that with models I will say, I think they must have beefed up the amount of paneling in engineering. Because I don't remember, or at least maybe they've ripped off stuff to make it look exposed, but there's just a ton of light-up stuff. It looks good. It's a interesting. It's a more interesting set than I've ever noticed before. Yeah, it's very, very cramped. Yeah, in the previous show where we saw it the most, well, the one where the, the other changeling died, Yeah, um, it seemed a little more sparse. Is destroying the ship really the best thing to do? To prevent it from falling in enemy hands? Yeah, I, I would assume so. Like, don't they have safeguards to you know, wipe their data? I, I don't know. I'm just kind of tired of destroying the ship as a plot device. Well, at least they never act... No, Oh, no, wait, she does. She slips the virus in. At least it doesn't have a countdown. Yeah. Like, they're allowed to just go and whisper at each other? Like, I don't know. Her hair looks good. No, like, I'll say, I think there might be maybe a scene and a half too much of the repair plot, but it, I think it progresses well. It has menace, and she, like, understands, okay, they, they adapted to our systems much faster than we adapted to theirs. It adds a sense of you know there, there's a non-artificial time crunch involved so that overall i enjoy watching it i it, it doesn't like it's not the deepest thing to think about but i'm enjoying it in the moment certainly i like that they cast actors too tall for the doors yeah well and they have very big appliances on their heads too Yeah, you know, so there's some... Your, your initiative pleases me. It's different than Gamma's. So. 
Uh, there's internal Jemadar politics, which is very interesting. Um, and they have very different faces, which seems kind of strange to me, given that they're genetically engineered. <laughs> It, it did always interest me that they never brought this distinction up again. Yeah. Like, unless the failure of the alphas on this mission, a spoiler alert, um, eventually um, you know, just caused them to abandon the project. Wouldn't the artificial gravity on the ship be stronger than on the runabout, even if they were the same size? I don't know. Well, if the thing can tolerate superluminal shifts of speed, I mean... I suppose. I mean, th they have to experience stronger... But he's walking right there. He can't hear them talk about warp core breaches. Uh... I really hate this joke. Yeah, me too. Like, that's borderline sexual harassment. I gotta say, the little double tap on the control was super well achieved. Yeah, I like that. I guess we know that it's not, uh, what do they call it, like capacitive, where you have to have a finger that can, you know, like relay an electrical current or something. So it's, it's not haptic? <laughs> yeah. And it needed a double tap. All right, and, and here's a little more fun science for, for all the nerds in the group when he explains that uh, the, the oxygen molecules are now too big for your lungs. Like, that's just, that's fun to think about. Like, how, yeah. yeah, how would that work? <laughs> well, and so as sort of silly as the idea was that somehow they could leave the anomaly and stay the same, at least they're being consistent with it. And they're giving a consequence. I don't consequence. know why these circuit housings are airtight. <laughs> it's like, do they reseal or pump the air back out after you're done fiddling with them? With well, that's fingers? why all their doodads just wave a light, because they don't go inside. <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, I, I, I completely agree. You know, if you're going to do... Like, this is great. Oh, this makes the episode. Like, it really does. This, this is the scene, it's like, even if I had been annoyed by everything, which I haven't, you know, this scene is worth a point. Yeah, you know? totally. Because it's it's your classic shrinking sci-fi scene. And, and it's such a, it, it does such a good, it's not like they introduced a heretofore unknown and unrecognizable part of Starfleet technology. This looks like the things we've seen in the guts of Star Trek tech since next gen. Yeah. Like, I would kill for, like, one of those oversized isolinear chips. <laughs> um, I might. I think I'd rather have a regular-sized one in my house. I mean, look, you know, some of these tubes and stuff, it's clear there's just light bulbs in there. <laughs> but the creativity is, yeah. you know, just really pleasing. Yeah, and, and unlike the sexually harassing joke, the little... Uh, Julian, stop! And like the the little like it was good physical acting by Sidig, and it was just a it was a f actually funny moment. Yeah, I like the different colors of chips. You know, 
I like that they have very large versions of the sort of decals that the chips have. Um, well, here's your white. <coughs> I kind of wish they would gone further into the difference between alphas and gammas because they're going to hear, you know, he's going to just sort of like preempt the speech and say, we're alphas, we don't need that stuff. You know, our loyalty is demonstrated by our deeds, right? But loyalty to what? Have they ever even seen a founder? Yeah, probably not. You know, isn't there only one in the alpha quadrant currently? That I thought the Vorta had to be yeah, the Yeah, I alphas. always thought that too, that it had to be a Vorta. There's only six of these little tubes. I would rather he say, not our loyalty, but we don't have loyalty to that stuff. <laughs> yeah. It's like, let's not do that whole speech rigmarole. Let's just, you know, get our white and kick ass. That would be more interesting to me. Yeah. Yeah, uh, uh, maybe if they had decided to dig into this and keep it up and bring it back, they could have set up some more interesting conflicts. Well, there could have been episodes for, which it's similar to ones that have happened before, in which, uh, you know, like Starfleet people actually team up with certain factions of Jemadar to take out other factions. I mean, that's clearly just like air conditioner tubing or whatever, but it's fine. There's a lot of techno babble here. You know, 66 stroke deltas. And... I mean, I like the doodad, like the little circuit housing with all its little oh, yeah. dealies. Yeah. And numbers and stuff. This is good interaction between them. I like you know, the idea that he should be thinking about his training instead of what his senses are telling him. I'm just trying to imagine actors memorizing this stuff. <laughs> yeah, I will say it's always one of my favorite parts of seeing actors at conventions when a fan asks a technical writer question, and it's clear that the actors have not invested anywhere near the resources in harmonizing and synthesizing the world the dialogue indicates. <laughs> like oh, I'd, well, it's like a student who's trying to get a grade, remembering something for only as long as it takes yeah. to, to do the quiz or whatever. Yeah. And then not they don't assimilate the data and, you know... Yeah. I don't know about... I'm trying to imagine a person's fingers doing these tasks... Because these things have to be designed for people to manipulate them. Well, and I, based on the size of the isolinear chips, these cor these cords would be pretty small. Yeah, but that's that's what all the doodads are for. I, I'm I'm assuming that's what the little all their little sonic screwdrivers do. <laughs> okay. It's good uh, hypoxia acting. Yeah. Definitely. 
Definitely. For both of them. I wonder how much they spent on these. Like, the tubes themselves probably were like a buck a piece. Right. But the connectors. Yeah. And somehow, all this rearranging of tubes is going to make it so that Nog can access the computer. It's like, somehow these physical things... I like it was good phaser. Like burned his hand or something. <laughs> I like the, I like the phaser work. It looks like like a little piece of solder there. Yeah. Somehow, physically changing cords will allow Nod to do something in software. All right, you've been conspiring for too long. <laughs> like, why don't they just have one Jemadar for each person watching over their shoulder as they do things? There's nothing else they have to do on the ship, really. Well, presumably. So the, the Jemadar to Starfleet ratio could easily be one-to-one. This line of dialogue I don't quite understand. The warp drive's already been fixed and they concealed it? How did they do that? Why did they do that? I just don't understand why the first hasn't executed the second. And it, well, again, the second is right here. They should be checking for the thing they clearly did. <laughs> yeah, while we weren't really watching very well. You're not talking that quietly. It's a state. I thought, I thought the Jemadar had enhanced like, yeah, hearing. It's like a Shakespearean soliloquy, oh, despite the fact that there's a dozen other actors on stage. Only Hamlet can only hear himself. <laughs> yeah. So I really like, you know, the idea that this miniature runabout has enough firepower to kill people. I hate it when they break necks like that. It's like I can turn my head like that just by myself, and it doesn't break. <laughs> that, you know. Well, it's a it's a it's largely a family show. They're not going to show the true viciousness of a of a forcibly broken neck. I, I, I it, it, <laughs> Well, then just don't go there. You know. It's like that would be like, why are you slightly turning my head gently? <laughs> 
I will say we've talked about this before. Cisco's ability to like karate chop the guy should be non-existent, but here we are. (laughs) This wasn't the worst Trek Fu in the world because at least there were weapons also being fired. I would just prefer. Well, it's good smoke work. All the little torpedoes and the weapons fire. (laughs) Like there's a haze that really works. Well, they had nice sparks from like squibs and stuff. See, now he, as he's dying, he's talking about obedience. It's like, what have you been doing for the past hour? You've been being disobedient. Well, he's been being sassy. He's followed orders. He's just grumbled about it. I will say, this is like the third or fourth time where the Jem'Hadar's power structure was the very thing that caused the Jem'Hadar to fail, much like... uh, uh, like on uh, rocks and shoals, it's kind of like you'd think the Jem'Hadar would start putting these pieces together. Like, hmm. Well, and these are specifically bred to be different. So why wouldn't they fix that stuff? Right. And this little piece here was cute. Uh, uh, of all the issues I have, especially now as an adult, with uh, Worf and Dax's relationship, her blowing him kisses through the window was charming. That worked for me. Yeah, sure. And now the Jem'Hadar... Right, a Federation POW camp. What are they doing? Are they, like, learning macrame or something? Uh, it's the Federation. They have a wave. I wonder how they get enough white to keep them from going insane. Maybe they're in stasis. Are they, are they going to be repatriated at some point? Or are they just going to be, like, given jobs, you know, settle down with a wife? Well, I, I think it was German POWs in World War II, like canned tomatoes at a Del Monte factory. They could do that. This little button of the uh, poem, it's its not the worst joke the show's ever told, especially once she reveals that uh, that there is actually no poem at all yet. But I don't know, this th- this bit, it it's not a inexcusable laugh out to the credits because as far as we can tell no one died so the laugh out's acceptable this was just a light silly episode but yeah. know, the, the joke just didn't work it's not that well, it was it's, bad it's no ode to spot yeah. yeah yeah this is a much funnier laugh to the credits uh what they're setting up here yeah where in the hell is keiko can I just ask? Well, once once they gave her an infant to toddle around, I think she knew uh, she wasn't going to be showing up as much because it's just harder to work in a family. But I, I enjoy, I yeah, I agree. Keiko should have been on the show more often. Well, I mean, this is precisely the inversion of the TNG episode, you know, in which Keiko is turned into a child. You know, it's like they should have a scene of Miles, you know, half an inch tall trying to talk to Keiko, you know, and he sounds, you know, like high pitched or whatever. How do you not do that? It just doesn't make sense. Well, it just like, uh, there needs to be like, especially given that they've both separately been possessed by angry entities. um, (laughs) I think they could really have like a little, like sit down of like, so we're retiring, right? (laughs) Yeah. They should be in marital counseling. Is, I mean, is that what's going on? Like, she just doesn't want to be around this bullshit. But that would make sense. And if they had a scene doing that, I, w- I would be thrilled. This question, where is Keiko, comes into even starker focus. Literally one episode, you know, after this one. Oh, yeah. 
why isn't Keiko the one storming into Cisco's office demanding to know where Miles is? Yeah. Yeah. Ah, just... It... Hey, why was Roe gone for two years? Why didn't they rehire Susie Plaxon? There, these are, there are many questions. <laughs> yeah. But, I mean, this question actually... It's like, Roe can just go somewhere else, you know? Susie Plaxon didn't play an integral character. Keiko, I would argue, is an integral character. I mean, yeah, she. I agree. <laughs> I, I would go so far as to say she and she's she and O'Brien have such good chemistry that her presence materially improves uh, the episode she's in. Yeah, e- even if it weren't for the quality of the actress, and, you know, Rosalind Chow is great, you know, but even without the quality of the actress together, you know, she is the one Starfleet spouse. You know, and there have been storylines about how she's irritated by, you know, the realities of the situation. It, are we just to take it that they're, like, separated? Or what? I, I don't know. Why don't they just have an arrangement or something? I guess Miles has no sex drive. Uh, or can he go on the Hall Suite? Like, talk about that. Talk about that. That is an interesting sci-fi question. When you are capable of traveling light years, how do relationships stand up to that? I mean, this isn't just like, you know, when you're in a different zip code, you know? Yeah. Okay. Uh, we're getting off track here, I guess. That, that, that would be a... Uh, the, the novels have been proceeding apace. I think the post-movie universe that they've all tried to fit into is starting to collapse a little under its own weight, but they're still pleasant reads. If someone wanted to go write the novel of the O'Brien's relationship, I would read that novel. Well, there you go. Here's the project. There's today's $10,000 idea. Alright, so from a writing perspective, this is not the strongest episode they've ever done, but it's not for, for an episode that hinges on something so silly, it's actually really good. Like, the tension's there, the humor's there, only a couple of the jokes really fall flat. Um, Yeah, I think there are some flaws in the way uh, things progress as far as, you know, the crew conspiring. I think the Gemheader come off a bit stupid-looking in the episode, but the Gemheader conflict is cool, um... The, the basic nuts and bolts of them uh, trying to take back the ship are cool, and the ways in which the shrunken runabout helps them are cool. So generally speaking, yeah, I think it's very entertaining. And and, and the humor mostly works, um, which is something that like if the jokes if the if they lean too hard on the stupid tiny jokes or. The, like if the inside of the runabout was not a fun half of the episode to watch, the entire episode fails. Yeah, because if nothing that. else, the the little um, vignettes in the runabout serve as the comic relief to the tense prisoner drama we're getting, and so they have to both progress their own plot and serve as the breathing space for the other one. And I think on that level, it definitely succeeds. Yeah, I agree. Um, you know, as far as acting goes, probably the best performances are from the Jem'Hadar. Uh, you know, of the main crew, it, I, I would say it's the runabout yeah, yeah. actors that, that do the heavy lifting uh, for the episode. 
you know, we're not really getting anything new from the, the prisoner crew. Yeah, like right. I said, I really like Terry Farrell in this episode. It's something, oddly, I think it might be one of her best episodes in a way. It's not that it required a lot, but it, it, it required a certain verve to really make it work. And she nailed it. There's just like, it was fun watching her be in this episode for me. Uh, but I agree. And the Jem'Hadar definitely did a really good job. The conflict was enjoyable and watchable and credible, even if it wasn't flawlessly supported by the writing. Uh, so I would say the most interesting Jem'Hadar was Fritz Sperberg as, I don't even want to say this, the second. Yeah. What else was he in? Because he looks super familiar. Hmm. Oh, well, he was... Rannick in Voyager's Body and Soul, the alien ship captain who developed the hots for Seven of Nine. Um, not a super memorable role, yeah. but you can, you can see the similarities in the faces. Um, you know, like lips and nose and stuff. Anyway, he was really good. Uh, you know, he really portrayed the sort of animus and the, you know, frustration really well yeah you know, whether or not the script gave him the best things to do the actor totally sold that emotion and so that that really added to the the general um drama of their scenes but you know it, it's a comedy episode for the most part and so it, actually no it's kind of a weird hybrid you know the, the runabout stuff is comedy the, the ship stuff is thriller retention. Um, hmm. The acting is at least average, if not slightly above average. And production values are quite, quite good. Yeah, really good. Like that yeah. circuit housing alone uh, was just awesome. They definitely added a lot. Um, a lot of stuff that nerds would enjoy. Yeah. And not even not even that. A lot of stuff that you know people who just want to see something cool yeah. would enjoy. So yeah, I, I definitely uh, great visuals of the ship flying around. Uh, Surf housing, like you say, was super neat to look at. Um, in fact, maybe what's notable is that nothing really sticks out as looking bad yeah yeah especially usually on such an ambitious episode you're like oh yeah they messed up yeah but here nothing <sighs> does this make it to a four overall that's that's the question i guess i mean the, the production value is really there the acting was really good the story has some gaps <laughs> but i really enjoy watching it like like this is as much. This is almost as much as I enjoyed on a purely visceral level watching Rascals, but with not with far less of the like, dear God, this is the dumbest setup in the history of time uh, that I had to like justify myself around in analyzing that one. Does See, I think Rascals was way funnier. Yes, yeah, that's what. I, yeah, I agree. I I just I'm tickled by Rascals more, but this is a stronger, more cohesive story. Uh, do I? Can I justify a four? Uh, I. Well, I'm just gonna say I think it's a three. Um, yeah, I I have to agree. The 
the the Jem'Hadar have to be just stupid enough, and the basic mechanism of the conceit that drives the plot is just contorted enough that yeah, it's a high three. It's a solid. It's not even like I'm grudgingly saying, "Oh, fine, it's average." No, it's a it's above the dead center of the bell curve, but maybe not high enough to to hit a four. Yeah, I don't I, think it's upper quartile. Yeah, you know. But, but solid's a, a, a high six to the extent that that's a thing. Well, yeah, if this were a golf shot, it's a solid average shot down the fairway, which is a good thing. You know, if this were a, a hit in baseball, you know, this is a solid single, which, hey, if you get a bunch of those in the game, you're going to win. Yeah. You know, um, it's got a lot to recommend it and a few things that hold it back. Uh, you know, it doesn't really do much to advance the overall plot of the series at this point. Um, and is that, I guess one question is, uh, you know, how serious a criticism is that at this point? Is that enough to penalize an episode? Uh, I don't think until season seven, it really becomes a major question of, does a one-off episode actually damage momentum you're building with your serialized storytelling? Well, I mean, at this point, they've essentially abandoned serialized storytelling. You know, it's like, that was a thing we did at the beginning of season six, and now it's just like a bunch of stuff that happens. Which makes me kind of sad, because, you know, I enjoyed the serialized aspect. Yeah, their best work is going to be in those arcs. Um. Yeah. So I think I think a three is fair. Yeah, I I agree. A three on our scale is a good solid show. Yeah, it's not it's not bad by any stretch. All right. So that that's a six out of ten for one little ship, uh, an enjoyable, action-packed little romp with some really solid, especially for like mid to late '90s special effects. Like, well done, guys. Yeah. No, this is a definite high point. Um in the show for special effects so far. Um, and to the extent that they integrated CGI, it was really well done and pretty seamless. Yeah. All right. Uh, so that's it for us for this episode. Uh, we'll be back in a few episodes. I, I don't know what we're going to podcast next. I can guarantee it's not going to be honor among thieves. Cause that's just going to be an hour of us saying, God, this is boring. God, this is boring. What's nothing's happening. Oh, um, we might have to do the Ferengi episode that's coming up. Oh, what's coming up? I haven't uh, looked ahead in a while. Well, isn't it uh, a notoriously bad Ferengi episode? Oh, it's not Profit and Lace coming up, is it? I think it might be. Oh, God. Ugh, awful. Yeah, uh, okay. Profit and Lace. Oh, God, spare us. Um... <laughs> Pale, uh, well, we'll probably do in the pale moon. Oh, yeah, yeah, I'm looking forward to that one. Um, my, my, my enthusiasm for that episode is not a fake. Um, and saving Val- that. Valiant and Times Orphan are both interesting. I like Valiant. I like I like the idea behind Valiant, and I have. Yeah. I, I there's like three tweaks I want to make to that episode, which I'll discuss when we get there. But it's a good episode. All right, so. We Valiant were, is what the Star Trek 2009 movie should have done. Yeah, yeah, God, ooh, that's that's deep. I agree. 
Like, they should have failed miserably, and everybody should have died. <laughs> oh, excuse me. <laughs> everybody should have died. Yeah, if only to spare us the uh, the, the abomination of Into Darkness, yeah. Before. All right, so that's it for us for this episode. We'll, we'll see you here for the next one. Have a good night. Okay.